middle of a sermon series this month called uh, Strange Jesus or Stranger Things, depending on when in our legal journey about whether we can use Stranger Things or not. We first heard the series. <laughs> and, and what it is is a study of the weirdest things that Jesus ever did. Things that Jesus did that confuse us and shock us and that on a number of levels just don't make sense. We've talked about coins in fishes' mouths that Jesus took to pay taxes. We've talked about poor old fig trees that got murdered for seemingly indiscernible reasons. Um, and this week, we come to this story, which is strange in, I think, a deeper and harder way than some of the absurd stories that we have read together. Because what's strange about it is what's strange so often about our lives and the world, which is how very, very awful people can be to each other. Right? How much we can hurt each other, how much we can betray each other. And it's just a different kind of strangeness to have to grapple with in the world. It's also not the only thing that is strange or weird about this passage There are several things about this scripture that um, can be confusing. So one of them is, if you haven't taken a whole class in Bible, the disciple who Jesus loved. You might think to yourself, didn't Jesus love all of them? <laughs> didn't Jesus love everybody? Why are we pointing out this one? And uh, most folks think that the disciple who Jesus loved was John the writer of this gospel, and he or who follow him are as a burden himself. They have this special place in Jesus' heart and life, the one who Jesus loved. Something else that's confusing about this uh, is that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, and maybe by our standards, doesn't know anything about it, no, right? No, right. He he the door. Or he did stop Jesus. Or he could send someone to get in between Judas and the soldiers who are going to hurt him and jail him and execute him in the name of the state. He could do something about it. Why does he? Right? Part of it is that he knows that this death, that this betrayal, is a part of what humans are choosing with their freedom, as we do so often. And part of it remains mysterious to us for the next part of the Another thing that's confusing is why does Jesus give Judas the bread, right? Some punk is sitting in front of you who you know is about to give you up to be murdered. Do you feed them first? Is that your primary concern? Is this the number one thing you want to do? No, turns out we aren't Jesus, you know? We, we, aren't, we aren't Christ. We may not have the generosity of spirit, the forgiveness in our hearts to say, here is the person who I have loved, who has hurt me so badly. Let me make sure that I send them with a blessing and that I send them with bread of my body to connect them to me forever. Might not be the intuitive way for us. And then the last part is this part that says, Satan wants to into him. What is that about? Did God send Satan in order to make Judas betray Jesus? Is it 
they're part of some grand plan of child abuse becoming redemptive? Is it a Job situation where God is going to trick someone? These are the phrases of the Bible that make us work, right, about who God is and how God will treat us and what this whole story means. Does Satan enter into him? Is that simply a description of maybe the experience we all had of a sudden impulse that goes away from goodness? A sudden impulse towards harm and pain because we're resentful or because we're frustrated or because we're tired or because we're angry when we feel a sudden lightning bolt in our spirit that causes us to say the cruel thing, that causes us to do the hurtful thing to the one that we love or the person who's near us because we feel at the end of our road. If it's that, I have certainly had Satan enter into me. I had moments in my life where one moment I felt like myself and the next moment I felt like a ball of anger and hurt and pain that could not be assuaged and I took it out on people around me. That's a thing that's happened to me. I have been one moment kind and faithful and in the next so sad or so incensed or so tired that I did something that hurt someone that I regret and that I wish I had never. Satan has entered into me. If what we're talking about is not, you know, a little guy with red horns, but the spirit of harm and um, self-preservation that thinks of the self as the only thing that exists, rather than the part of a body of love and care that we are a part of. There's a lot of confusing things about this scripture. Many places where we might find ourselves intrigued. One thing that always helps me with this story, um, our uh, co-pastor, Pastor Emily, actually offered to me, which is, why does Jesus do it? Right? This is another thing that helps me about this story. Why, after living with someone for three years, devoting your life to them, making every possible sacrifice for their mission and their ministry and their big claims about being God on earth, right? If, if you follow someone who's saying that for a few years, you're all in, you know? You're, you're in on this guy. You're in on this message. You're in on Jesus. Why then betray? And there's a lot of different things it might be. We don't have Jesus in front of us to ask, but the one that made the most sense to me is this part that the scripture says about Judas having the common curse. And then when people saw him speaking with Jesus, what the disciples assumed was happening was that he was about to go give some money to the poor. There's this uh, interpretation of Judas' actions that says that Judas, as the only Judean of the disciples, felt particularly aggrieved and betrayed when Jesus entered Jerusalem and then didn't militarily liberate it that what he thought was coming all this time was the liberation of his people, and then he watched Jesus kind of like sit and talk to people and get mad, but not take down the powers and the forces that had hurt his people so thoroughly. Um, there's an interpretation that Judas is feeling betrayed and from that betrays. Or another, that because Judas held the common purse, 
when this remarkable event happens where a woman um, spends so much money on oil to break over the head of Jesus and anoint him before his death, this gorgeous, beautiful act of worship, that Judas is the one who said, but why don't we give that money to our poor? Isn't that our whole deal? Right? Who's heard that from someone else who goes to church now? Why would they build that fancy stained glass? Why would they give it to the poor? He's having an instinct that lives in many of us, right? Is that the best use of our resources? Are you who you say you are? And then even as he betrays Jesus, it might be because he is feeling betrayed. Maybe I can't trust this man who said that he was about everything that I was about. Maybe I can't trust this man who said that he wanted to liberate my people and offer me freedom and care for the most marginalized. Maybe he's just like the rest, money, hungry, and alive. But his betrayal doesn't come from a place of uh, wickedness in his view, but a place of righteousness, which if we're going to think about all the times that we've messed up and hurt somebody, or did something we regret. It's probably true of us. Because in that moment, we didn't think of ourselves as wicked or causing pain. We thought of ourselves as coming from a right and justified place. There's a lot that's strange about this scripture, but there's a lot that we can say about it. But I'll tell you the thing that I find strangest of all. Those are little notes. Those are things that I can get over. Those are things that I can read interpretations of. Those are things that I can understand. But the most remarkable thing to me about this story is the part that's not even in it. Let's go back to the very beginning of the scripture. The very beginning part. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. After saying this, what was it he said before? <laughs> Turned out right before this, Right before this story of betrayal and bread offering, I want to get it exactly right, is when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Something that we do here at Urban Village every single year on Monday Thursday. We get together in homes and we wash one another's feet and hands and we feed one another. One of the most vivid depictions in the Bible of totally intimate relationship and service to another, he washes feet and then asks them, do you understand what I have done for you? I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Live into intimacy, live into love, live into service. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. At my heart is acceptance of all, is love and is service. And then this thing where he talks about the greatest possible disconnection. Not the greatest possible love and intimacy, but the greatest possible disconnection. That one of those people who you just washed the feet of, who you gave yourself to completely, and then be the one who betrays you. That's what gets me, is the juxtaposition of these two events in Jesus' life, these two stories of what it means to be a person and what it means to be a follower of God, because they get at the heart of what I think so many of us are struggling with when we come before God, when we come before a church community, and we try and figure out who we're going to be in it, which is, how vulnerable can I be? How vulnerable can I be ever? And is vulnerability good or bad? We see in one chapter, 
the most extraordinarily beautiful vision of what vulnerability can look like. Take off your shoes and give your stinky feet to one of your friends and let them serve you by washing them with their hands. Truly imagine if one of your best friends in the world with whom you have shared so much life experience, late night talks, vulnerable facts about your worst fears and your hardest things, offered to wash your feet. One to ten, how uncomfortable would you be? Right? How much would that interfere with all of these walls that you have set up and all of these things that you have set up about what intimacy should look like and what vulnerability should look like? It is the most beautiful vision of vulnerability received in therapy. Vulnerability being offered to someone and then they don't mess it up. <laughs> they don't hurt you with it. They don't say something nasty about your feet. They don't splash the water in your face. Right? They do what you have asked. They receive your vulnerability in care. And then we flip it right on its side and see the cons. The hard part of sharing yourself, of opening yourself up, which is that somebody might then take that open door and send a weapon through. That somebody might then take that heart you have put in their hands and break it right in front of you. That if you open yourself up and offer yourself as a servant, as a lover, as an open door, as a vulnerable person, somebody might stomp all over the feelings that you have given to the world. And so many of us, I hear it in every copy I have of one of you, in every Facebook post one of you posts, in everything I hear passing on the street, that so many of us are struggling with this in our relationships. That we live in a world that has set us up to trust fewer and fewer people, to be connected to fewer and fewer people, and to have less and less practice being vulnerable, and for the stakes to feel higher and higher when we do. And so we aren't washing one another's feet. We're putting in front of one another uh, curated visions of who we actually are that are strong enough to withstand scrutiny so that no one can actually see inside of us and see us for who we really are. And Jesus says, I have listed all. I know how bad it gets when you open yourself up and it isn't received. And boy, is it still worth it. It's worth it enough that I shared that feet washing and that communion with the one who would betray me in the most profound possible way. That's how worth it vulnerability is. And I think the thing is that for a lot of us, we're not just struggling with that with people. The person we struggle the most to be vulnerable with is no friend, or partner, or colleague, or stranger. It's God. Most of us are sitting in worship, or praying during the week, or trying to open a Bible, or trying to read some Rachel Levy's or something, and still struggling to be at all vulnerable with God, who we say made us, who we say loves us, but we still aren't sure that that could ever really possibly on earth be true. Can we actually give ourselves to God, who so many people have told us will hurt us, has hurt us, will betray us? Can we actually be open with the God who we talk about so much? And I know that because half the time when I'm in a conversation with someone and they say, 
I'm not sure God is okay with me right now. I'm not sure God can really love me given what I've done. I'm not sure God is really there for me given how much church betrayed me, given how much my family left me behind. How can I trust that God is really there? And the number one thing I ask is, have you asked God about it? Have you gone to the source? And the answer is almost 100% of the time, no. I can't even get there. Where I ask God, are you okay with me? Where I say to God, this is what makes me worry about whether I can trust you. Where I offer to God, here's the brick wall, will you tear it down? Because my trust is so low, I can't even open myself up enough to ask the question. It's been told to me so many times that me and God are not in charge of our relationship, but some pastor is in charge of our relationship, or some outside judge or authority is in charge of our relationship, that I can't bear to even begin asking God, God stuff, how it is with my soul and how it is with us together. It's really, really hard. It's really hard. <laughs> to be vulnerable and open with God, and there are a bunch of ways to do it. One thing that some of you have done um, when you're struggling with this vulnerability is to say, just start saying your inner monologue out loud, right? Right, just start, just start saying it out loud. God, I'm not sure that you exist, and I feel dumb as hell doing this, and here's what happened to me today. Just start saying the inner part externally. See how opening yourself up and talking to God changes your sense of who God is and where God might be in your life. Another is to find a rhythm or a prayer that does crack your heart open just the tiny bit so that you might find more openness and vulnerability. I'm someone who, I've had anxiety and depression for as long as I can remember. I remember fourth grade, Sunday nights, sitting in my room, my stomach roiling because I thought that if I hadn't done the homework right for Monday morning, the world might literally fall apart. And sharing that with no one, right? Because I assumed that it was happening to everyone and that it was as bad for everyone as it was for me. And for years and years, I had this anxiety and I had this depression and I had this sense that I was worthless and that God um, was primarily mad at me if God existed at all. That that was the main emotion that God would have about who I was. Disappointed, right? That I hadn't lived up to who I should be. And that still happens sometimes, because brain chemistry is weird, and being a human is weird, and being in a community is hard, and we don't get rid of all the messages that we do in once all at once. But the breakthrough for me came when I found a therapist who was also a spiritual director. She was an Episcopalian priest with a degree in psych. So we would just talk about the whole enchilada every single week. <laughs> and my pastor was there for me, and I talked to, to him a lot too. And if you want a spiritual director, we have a referral list of people all the time. And she said to me, every time you're in that cycle of dissociation, right, where you become disconnected from who you are as a person because you're so scared that opening yourself up to God might mean that you're worthless, that opening yourself up to another person might mean that they'll attack you, I want you to start tapping on your leg and going up and down this song. Just start saying to yourself, peace. Peace be. Peace be still. Peace be still and peace be still and no. Peace be still and no I. Peace be still and no I am. Peace be still and no I am God. 
was doing it, and I thought it was really dumb and started doing it. <laughs> and every time I did it, a little more peace would enter into me, and a little more of a suggestion that if God was just God, I could just be me, started to lend itself to the back of my mind. I started to meditate before me the day, and my entire meditation would be me thinking, I'm just thinking about my groceries. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done. This is definitely not going to work. But I would do it for four minutes a day. I would stare at a place and I would try and be quiet and not distract myself by all the stress and what I And the meditation opened up a place in me where I was less scared of who God had created me to be, and I was less scared of quiet, and I was less scared of silence. And it opened up these tiny doors of openness, these tiny doors of trust that I wasn't sure if they were going to stay open or slam closed at any moment in time. And I went down a real anxiety spiral one day, one of the worst, right? Where I'm just like, I'm just in the worst place, right? I can't think straight. I'm wandering around my apartment. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, what if I just, instead of winding in my brain about whether what I've done is good enough for God, about whether I've earned my life for living, about whether I'm an okay person, what if I just asked? What if I just said, God, do I suck or not? God, am I okay or not? And when I directed it to God, instead of to the judging critic within, when I directed it to God, instead of the imagined critics who had been around me my entire life, when I directed it to God, instead of what some book or YouTube video or asshole from my youth had told me about what God loved and needed, when I just asked the question of God, I was flooded with a sense of total belovedness, peace, and strength, and a sense of sadness that I had even had to ask the question. This sense of total connection and honey, I have been here the whole time. The whole time. The whole time I have been waiting for you to ask me. The whole time I have been telling you it's true. That you arrived and that peace is real and stillness isn't just part of who I am, but part of what your heart is knowing. And that moment is not every moment of my life. It's just not. I don't live with that conviction in every second. I still get scared. I still get mistrustful. I still get mad. I still close the door. But I know that the door can be opened and that God is who God says God is. Because I brought it to God. And so I would ask you that if you have suffered in any way from not being open with God, if there is something that you think you are holding secret from God, if you think that there is something that if God finds out about it, God will not give you the bread. If you think there is something you have done where if God finds out about it, God will not love you. Remember Judas and open the door to yourself. Don't listen to what I say about whether God loves you. Don't listen to what the other people in the church say about whether God loves you unless it helps. Be vulnerable. Be open. Embrace the risk. Know that we are meant to catch you if it goes badly. And try and figure out with God who you are and whether love is real and where it can be found. Because I trust God now enough to know that what you will find might not be perfect and it might not be permanent, but it will be realer than anything else that can be offered to you. Because God 
God uh, washes our feet, who embraces our vulnerability and says, on the other side of it, 